Welcome to the 1505 Club. I'm Dr. David Fowler, and my guest today is Dr. Dan Lyons. Dr. Lyons and I had a lot of fun recording this conversation, and if you know Dr. Lyons, then you're not surprised by that at all. Dr. Lyons is a great chiropractor, but he's also well-known through Gonstead Circles for his storytelling. Dr. Lyons practices in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and he is an in-demand speaker for both Gonstead seminars and chiropractic philosophy seminars. He's a fellow of the Gonstead Clinical Studies Society, and he's also on our board of directors. We're very fortunate to have him with us today, as he's been globetrotting for the last few months while teaching seminars. But today, we'll be discussing subluxation and the crossroads between Gonstead practice and chiropractic philosophy. So without any further ado, Dr. Dan Lyons. Thank you, Dr. Lyons, for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Fowler. Uh, first off, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into chiropractic and perhaps more specifically, how you ended up in Gonstead Chiropractic? Uh, long story. All right. We're just talking about stories. So um, I got into chiropractic. I started seeing a chiropractor in high school. I was playing basketball and uh, landed on the floor real hard and suddenly I, I couldn't bend over. I, it wasn't really painful. It just was locked up and stiff. And uh, my parents had always gone to a chiropractor. I grew up in Wisconsin, about 20 some miles from the uh, Gonstead Clinic. And we had, a, I didn't live in Mount Horeb. I lived in a small town. We had a chiropractor in town and his kids were in school with me. So I, I went there and they said, back then I didn't even need parental consent. I just drove over there on a study hall and, <laughs> and excuse me, and, and went in and he saw me and he was an activator doctor. And um, you know, I felt a little better when I left and then I felt a little more of the same, you know, a little bit later. And, uh, and, uh, so then my parents, I said, I went to the chiropractor, I told him this, and they're like, I ah, don't go see this guy, go see the different guy. And so then I went to another chiropractor that still was not a, uh, a Godstead guy, but, um, he definitely helped me feel better and didn't really talk much about philosophy or anything and just. He was a very busy, very nice chiropractor. And then I, you know, I, I went away to college and at uh, several, played college ball, had several big injuries, including a broken neck from a car accident. And I, I'm all done with school or almost done with school. And I realized that I'm set up to be a lab rat, uh, either a chemist or a biologist. And I didn't want to do that. And I was just wondering what I should do. And then I don't even recall how I remembered Dr. Reinen, the chiropractor I'd seen through most of my high school career. And he just seemed to love his life. He was always happy. He was always busy. He helped people. I like to see him as a patient. He seemed happy to see me. And uh, I had been thinking about going to medicine, but the, my last follow-up for my broken neck, my surgeon proved to be kind of a kind of a jerk great surgeon no bedside personality and that just turned me off from the whole profession uh, which is an important lesson write that down maybe Dave we can move back to that later uh, <laughs> and so then I uh, I remembered my chiropractor was the opposite personality wise my surgeon so I called him up and and checked it out and he encouraged me so then I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to National College down in Chicago. I knew nothing about any of the schools, but I knew where that school was. And because I lived down there one summer and my college roommates and buddies were down there and there was a gym down there that I, <clears throat> I really liked. So I went to visit there and was not impressed at all with the size of the school and stuff. But again, I didn't, I didn't know anything. You don't know what you don't know. And then I had a friend from high school who was going to Palmer and she heard that I was thinking about going to national. And so she called me every day until I promised I'd go and check out Palmer. And at that point in my life, I didn't care if I ever set foot in Iowa. Um, college sports rivalry, 
So <laughs> we're like dumb. We have dumb reasons for doing things. So, <laughs> so we went. Uh, so I went down there, and as soon as I got on campus, I just I knew that was the place. And she happened to be a Troxel intern. I didn't know anything about Dr. Troxel or Gonstead really, even though I'd been in the Gonstead clinic in the room with Dr. Gonstead when he'd seen my parents when I was a real little kid. And so the first Thursday there was a workshop and I had a couple of friends. So I show up to, to school, six, six, 250 pounds, long ponytail, snakeskin boots and, uh, looking rather intimidating. And a couple of my classmates, three cousins were all like, man, we got to make sure that guy's our friend. And they had, uh, sisters and dads that were interns. So they were going to go out and they invited me out to this thing on Thursday night. And I said, I can't, I already have something going on Thursday night, but next week. And when I showed up at Thursday night, we were all together and that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I looked at all the other techniques I had, uh, before I decided when I first started college, I was going for engineering and architecture, but I hated the math. So I got out of that. And I think what ultimately drew me to the Gonstead work was that engineering and architecture background of Dr. Gonstead that's built into the work. And it, it just makes so much sense to my brain and to have the, the five tools to get to bring you to the point where, yes, this is what I should be adjusting just makes so much sense that it just, it could, you couldn't draw me away. I went to, uh, pretty much everything, all the big techniques out there when I was in school, I, I looked at them at least once to see if there was something that made sense. Is this a better way? And I found nothing. And that's the story. That's great. Um, in the process of coming through, who were your mentors? Who, who did you really study under as you were, as you were coming up through the Gonstead system? Uh, Dr. Troxel was the probably the the biggest one in and in, in that he just had created that space available and when i was an intern um so there's there's three periods of, of troxel running the intern program so there was um you know from when he first got out of school and started he wasn't even in practice yet and students showed up at his door uh, he was teaching at Palmer, so they knew who he was uh, to help him and learn from him. And then there was, when I was in there, he had just gotten divorced. So he had moved from Davenport up to Clinton and was working in uh, the Dr. Pam's clinic. And uh, they weren't even dating, and then they started dating, and then they got married. to so a few years after I graduated, that was unfortunately the period where he was around the least. You know, he just went through a big divorce. Physically, he wasn't around. Um, and and he was just getting his life back to a, a, a sane where he liked it state. <clears throat> and then there was uh, probably four years after I graduated, the interns uh, switched his switched the, the nights they had workshops to nights where Dr. Troxel was in the, the Parkview Clinic where we have the November and January seminars. And so then he was around again. So uh, before and after, they really had a father where he was there all the time. You know, Dr. Pam never, um, you know, she was around all the time. It was really, really good for them. We, it was a little, little tougher. I remember the first time I met T, I thought, uh, I, I thought he was someone else because <laughs> You didn't see him at, at seminars, maybe until you were an intern. And when you were an intern, you didn't get to really hang out with him much until you were the senior intern. Uh, but Rod Campbell, who was, uh, if you watch all the old Gap videos, he's he's in there always. He practiced out in California. And then uh, when he was retiring, his wife was from Iowa. So he, he moved back to Davenport. And so he was originally the chiropractor that practiced in, in the Parkview Clinic. And so, you know, it was his smoking habit that really helped me a lot. <laughs> and fortunately, he's still around and kicking and, and doing well, but uh, uh, probably because he quit smoking. But he, uh, 
he would have a cigarette in between each patient. And I would go out to the clinic every single day and just follow him around. And he would, he would always uh, tell people, well, I, I got to go do something. And we all knew he was going to have a cigarette, but we all played <laughs> along and he'd hand me a scope and say, check the patient. And so I'd scope and palpate. And then he'd come back after a cigarette and I'd say, you know, I found L5, uh, PLS, T8, PLIT and, and C7, whatever the listing was. And, and then he'd scope and palpate and look at the x-ray and check and tell me that's right or that's wrong. And if it was wrong, he'd tell me why it was wrong. And, uh, you know, that was invaluable. So I had, you know, a year, you know, probably almost two years of doing that. And, and that was amazing. And then, uh, Dr. Phyllis Markham and, uh, who, was instrumental in getting the seminars, uh, Dr. Gonstead even to teach. And then she ran his x-ray department for years. Uh, you know, that's just, you know, call it luck or call it God intervening. But my first, when we had that clinic open, the first seminar there, um, I walk in and I hear, well, as I live and breathe, Dan Lyons. And here's her boyfriend at the time, CC Richelieu, who made, who started the company that makes the the mm. adjusting equipment. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, I, I guess a, he was definitely a celebrity. We didn't know how famous he was back when I was a little kid, but he was the world's best banjo player and his banjo shop was in my hometown. Mm. And, uh, he would always come and watch the basketball games. And, and this is the first time he'd seen me from there. And I, I was like, wow, Mr. Richelieu, I'm flattered you even recognized me. And so he, we got to catch up for a couple of minutes and then he escorted me over and introduced me to his, his best gal, uh, Dr. Phyllis. And she and I hit it off. And so I would pretty much be sitting at her side at the seminars. And then when I first got into practice, her, uh, her apartment and my office and my apartment were all a little triangle about three tenths of a mile apart. And I would go over there every day and, and uh, check Rich because he had some big things going on and go over films with her. And so, I mean, a lot of it is it's opportunity that was presented there. And I just was either uh, smart enough or dumb enough to, <laughs> to <laughs> fall into those, <laughs> those opportunities and take advantage of it. It was just, you know, literally grind, probably the, the going and spending you know, at least an hour, if not two, every day with, with Dr. Phyllis for years when I was in practice and going up for hours every day when I was in at Palmer and scoping and palpating and being shown what I did right or wrong. It's, it was just a grind, an enjoyable one, though. Yeah, my next question was going to be what your first couple of years of practice were like, but you kind of answered that and and how valuable that was to have somebody like her because... Uh, I know for me in my first couple of years, I, I didn't have much of anybody. I had a few people I could kind of email. <laughs> that was about as good as it got. But mm -hmm. having somebody who can kind of be by your side and, and help you with some of those hard things you start discovering as you get in practice really, really helps the process to go better. Um, what were your first couple of years like? Did, did you kind of come flying out of the gates going well or were there struggles as you, as you got through? You know, I think there's, there's always some struggles. I mean, I never had a month where I didn't didn't pay the bills. Um, right. Doesn't mean I was rolling in the dough, but um, it was, uh, you know, 24 years ago, it was a totally, totally different time than it is now. Um, I opened my first office on uh, a $25,000 loan that I, uh, I took out from the bank. I banked at my home whole life. I started out practicing in my hometown. And I went in there, I had my car to put up for collateral, which was a, a used Pontiac Grand Prix. And I had uh, a set of equipment and a couple of scopes uh, of which I greatly inflated their value. Filling <laughs> 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 out the paperwork. Uh, and, and so they said, John said, I can give you a loan for $25,000. I'm like, all right. So I found a uh, office that was being shut up, a satellite office. So I went in and bought a used x-ray machine. I had dip tanks, 
I had um, a couple sets, a couple more sets of equipment, a couple of weird off-brand high lows. Uh, there was a front desk, some chairs, some phones, you know, pretty much all the basics that you need, view boxes. And I brought that back. And I remember I didn't want to do the dip, ta dip tank. So then I found for another $1,000, I think I paid $12,000 for the original uh, office, everything in the office. And then I had um, the, I found a processor for about $1,000. And, you know, I had to rent the space. And so I was running out of money and I took out a uh, Best Buy credit card to buy a computer, which is, uh, you know, was like a Pentium 96 or something <laughs> horrible, had zero computing power compared to today. Um, and that in a printer cost me $4,500. And so, you know, I was, I was open for 25, you know, at the most 29 thousand dollars and just started seeing patients i made up printed up some flyers telling my story and had my picture on it and some business cards and i walked uh door to door and just knocked on doors and uh you know i got some patients from that i had one gal uh i i'm knocking on the door and i she's in in her house coat watching her soaps and i can see her through the window and she's trying to slide slide past me and get out of the living room. And I, I just kind of said, you know, I can see you. And she goes, shit. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she comes up to the door and I said, you know, Hey, uh, you know, my name is Dan Lyons. I'm a, uh, I graduated from school here 10 years ago. And, you know, now I'm a chiropractor. I'm just back. And she says, Oh, you're a chiropractor. And I said, uh, yes, I am. She goes, do you have a specific technique? And I had written out about 150 questions. I thought I'd be asked or should, say and and had my answers all written down i did not have that one written down and so i'm like uh yeah and she goes well is it gonstead and i said yes it is and she now she comes out on the front porch uh, <laughs> in her house coat she goes oh i was a patient at clarence's my whole family was we saw my whole life um and uh she goes i you know i'll I, I see Dr. Alex out there, but I've been trying to get my family to go and they won't go and because it's too far, but I'm going to send them all into you. So she ends up sending her, her uh, daughters in and, uh, you know, the grandkids and then the, the great grandkids. Well, it turns out that she is the grandmother of one of my high school friends, <laughs> but I'd never met her. And, but, uh, you know, and the story she would tell me, you know, about every, every week they had a standing appointment, her whole family did to see Dr. Gonstead and they would go into the clinic on Friday night and they would check in and they would slide, slide a dollar or two to the, the CA at the front desk. And then they'd go down to the care call and have dinner and drink. So he was always a couple hours behind. And when it was getting close, they would call down to the care call and page them and say, you're going to be up in 15 minutes. So they'd pay the tab and run up to the clinic and be seen. Hmm. So, I mean, it was, that was that was phenomenal and so walking around uh doing that um you know I, I was very very heavy on on patient education uh i would print out news articles and write my little thing and photocopy them and hand them out to everybody and i had uh cork boards all over the walls with stuff and it was you know looking at it now it was kind of like a, a data overload Patients would walk in and they would instantly be vomited upon by those uh, those things. And I definitely could have presented that in a better way, you know, more like uh, things I do now, more organized and, and in a cleaner man manner. But that focus, I mean, I, my fourth patient uh, that I ever saw is still a patient. And I'm two and a half hours away from that office. Uh, one day mm -hmm. I was... Uh, up here and I get a phone call and, you know, he had moved up here and was wondering if I was still taking new patients. So I, I still see them. I still am in contact with many of the patients that I saw back, back in uh, Oregon. It's wow. just building those relationships. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's great. Um, now, also, in addition to being a Gunstead guy, you're also kind of known through the chiropractic philosophy circles. And, you, and you're a frequent speaker at some of their uh, seminars and events. How did you get involved with the chiropractic philosophy side of things? 
you know, I guess I would ask, how can you not? Uh, <laughs> chiropractic is a philosophy, a science, and an art. You know, and uh, hopefully everybody's heard the three three legged milking stool analogy. And uh, if you got a milking stool with three legs and you take one of the legs away or, or make it short, uh, depending upon how short you make it, that stool gets really wobbly or just plain doesn't work. And so, you know, when I was in school, um, I fortunately, one of the three guys that <coughs> said, uh, invited me out to one of the three cousins that invited me out to the Troxel workshop that first night. He had a sister that was a chiropractor and she had given him some Fred Barge books. So he was, he was really fired up about that. And so he turned me on to some Fred Barge stuff and I just started reading. And then I had uh, well, Andy Roberts who passed away a couple of years ago, two years ago, three years ago now, uh, who did the, the art of the specific was teaching upper cervical stuff. Um, he was one of my classmates and he was eventually president of the Delta Sigma Chi fraternity. And so we had a group of people in our class that were really, really into the philosophy. And then I remember I'd go down to the archives and have them print off uh, PHC thesis. So they used to have a thing called a PHC, which is a philosophy of chiropractic degree, kind of like a PhD is a philosophy doctorate. And, um, now the, the current diplomate is a DPHCS because they wouldn't let us bring back the PHC um, for, you know, uh, educational political reasons. So, but, so once they offered that, you know, when I was in school, I'd go see Dr. Barge every chance I could. And, you know, we'd watch Reggie and, and these guys. And then once they offered, Palmer offered the LCP, which is, now the LCP doesn't exist. Uh, the um, ACP, which is what Sherman puts on, that's the first year of the philosophy diplomate. And so I took the LCP, we were part of that first class. And, you know, that was an amazing experience. It, it really, some of my closest friends, actually all my, almost all my closest chiropractic friends are from that philosophy class. Eric Russell, who teaches at Parker and uh, ran, was president of the College of New Zealand for a couple of years. Dr. Rob Sinnott, who probably everybody listening to this knows who that is. Norris Erickson passed away. Brad Polk, who's one of the smartest uh, men in the profession and one of the, the most hidden gems in the profession. Uh, Brian Flannery, who was teaching out at Life for Life West for a long time. Chris Pasolacqua, who is in Michigan and again, uh, one of the smartest guys and most well-rounded individuals in the profession and uh, a hidden gem. Most people don't know about him. Uh, you know, these guys that we talk all the time and make sure that we are all, you know, slipping and checking. You know, if we have an idea, we, and we're not sure about it, we run it past one another and say, hey, look at this. You know, when Rob writes a check for, for a book, he sends it off to a, a few of us and, and we read and proof it and, and get it back to them. So, uh, you know, that experience going through and then when they decided they were going to add two more years on, that was, you know, a no brainer. We had so much fun. And, and when those docs get together, you know, we miss that camaraderie. There's that thing. When you get out into practice, you no longer have all those people around you that, uh, have been, it's kind of like the military when they, they say they embrace the suck and as, as, as bad <laughs> as it was, they look back and smile fondly on those times. And, you know, it's the same thing the, the, the fun we had, the, the, you know, just ache in your gut because, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to get up and give a philosophical presentation in front of Dr. Barge and, and, and Virgil Strang and uh, Bud Crowder. Uh, and Reggie Gold, I mean, wh what are they going to say? How, what do I have to say in front of those people? And, and really, really forming your your place in the chiropractic world philosophically and, and understanding it. Because if you just if you pick up a green book and read it, yeah, you know, I read that green book and I kind of, 
I, I get that, but it, it, it has led to what I call bumper sticker philosophy, you know, the above, down, inside out. It means something to me. Uh, it might mean something a little different to you. Uh, but if you tell that to someone on the street, uh, that could just as easily be a dietitian's slogan. Because <laughs> you take your food, it goes from above down and from then the inside out back into the toilet. So, uh, really diving in and understanding that. And I think the, the loss of philosophy in the profession in general has really been the biggest, the biggest problem that we have, because, you know, there's a lot of stuff I can, you can watch people do, you know, they're adjusting and that's, that's not, some of that is what they do is not philosophically sound. Uh, the whole thing, uh, when people talk about innate to innate communication, you know, philosophically unsound, does it mean there aren't some things that we don't know about and haven't been uh, discovered yet? But by definition, my innate cares nothing about anything other than making sure I make it from moment to moment as best I can. Right. Yeah. yeah and actually, that's a great segue because um, what I, one of the things I want to talk to you about is the word subluxation, which, as you were just saying, one of the things that happens with subluxation is that we use it throughout the profession, and yet we don't all agree on what it means. So from the from both the Gonstead side and the philo, philosoph, philosophical side, sorry, <laughs> from the philosophical side, um, is there a way that we can uh, scientifically say that this is what a subluxation is, or maybe even more importantly, this is what a subluxation is not? Uh, yeah, there is. That is a, a very long discussion. We'll try and I'm break sure. it down. You know, <laughs> that's the first part of that is what are you going to call science? Right. Because you know, that's, you always have to understand the rules of the game for any debate. And I, you know, this isn't really a debate. I know you and I agree on all this stuff. So, but for everyone else out there, um, you know, is it something that's been, is it only science if it's in a peer reviewed, published, randomized clinical trial? Is that all that, that science is, you know, science is really just the, the systematization. Is that a word? I think it is. Anyway, uh, uh, taking all the knowledge that you have out there and, and classifying it and putting it into a system. That is the, the simplest, best definition of science. And if you have a, a body of knowledge that can be put into certain categories uh, in a coherent and reproducible manner, then you know, then you actually have something there. And so... The, when you go back to start to blend the philosophy and the science, because the philosophy is the idea, the science is the is the um, the bridge really between the the art and the philosophy. So we have to have something in there. So you know the 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 chapters. The full name is the uh, Gonstead Philosophy, Science, and Art, because you have to have all three. And the, the system is really the science part. You know, I, I, I have done at the extravaganza, I did a whole, uh, the philosophy section on Friday, Saturday night last year about philosophy and Dr. Gonstead, you know, and his, I just used his quotes and like the, the slogan chiropractic works. I, I think someone saw you know, basically paraphrased one of Dr. Gonstead's long statements and then put it on a t-shirt and, and simple works on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. <laughs> but uh, Dr. Gonstead said chiropractic always works. When it appears not to examine your application, but do not question the principle. And mm -hmm. so this, the science part of Gonstead is uh, the the consultation, the taking the case history and, and looking at what's going on, what symptoms are that patient expressing. And a lot of the, you know, hate straights, we'll call them the people that don't ever want to talk, think they're a straight chiropractor and don't ever want to talk about symptoms. Um, the bottom of the safety pin cycle is expression. So innate, you know, universal intelligence, 
uh, and innate intelligence then decide this is what needs to be done in the body and they send a message down to all the cells and tissues in the body and if the tissues respond to that message, receive and then respond to that, there is expression. And if there's interference, there's a lack of expression, which in our words, those are symptoms. That's what they are. You're either able to lift your arm up or you're not. You either have normal skin tone or you got a real big welt or something going on there. Uh, and so looking at that and then starting to say, okay, there's a lot of things that can cause that. How else do we find that? How do we see if it's in the nervous system? Well, that's why you use instrumentation. And Dr. Gans said, use a nervous scope. And now we're, you know, we have surface EMG. We have uh, thermal imaging. We have HRV. We have there's more EEG. There's a lot of different tools that we have that Dr. Gonsta didn't have, that BJ and Stevenson and Craven didn't, they didn't have these tools, but we do. And, you know, part of the frustrating things is getting people to say, okay, we can do more than Nervoscope. And it's still doing Gonsta. Um, then you have to palpate. And, you know, palpation is a very interesting thing. Dr. Phyllis used to always say that Dr. Gonstead did not, especially on the first visit, like to do a lot of motion palpation. Do a lot of static palpation, but not a lot of motion palpation. Hmm. And uh, motion palpation, if you want to go back to the uh, Google Scholar and see how reliable palpation is, uh, it is not very reliable at all. Uh, study after study shows that. Um, and it's because you are palpating through an inch to, you know, depending upon how big your patient is, you know, uh, being here in the, the land of cheese and beer. And sometimes there's, there might be eight inches of, of tissue I have to palpate through. And I'm not, you're not going to feel, you're going to feel something, but it's probably not what you think you're going to be feeling. But if you have an x-ray, now you are taking another tool and adding it in there, something very visual and concrete and absolute. But now if you have an x-ray, if you palpate without an x-ray and write down what you think you find, and then you look at the x-ray and palpate, you will find often enough to say that you should do it all the time, a little something different. Oh, maybe I wasn't feeling, maybe I was feeling this or, oh, I thought I was there. And I'm really here. Uh, Dr. Albert put out a challenge to um, the, the College of Fellows, the GCSS College of Fellows a couple of weeks ago to palpate the new patients, put a BB on what you think is L5 and shoot the x-ray and see how, how often you are right and how often you are wrong. And we did this experiment when I was in school. And there were times, you know, we would uh, put a a uh, little dab of lipstick on your pisiform and you would palpate and take a contact with no tissue pull. And, uh, and then the lipstick would transfer to the patient and then you'd put a BB on that. And then uh, we did this when people were getting their exams, uh, interns would be getting their exams. And then uh, we put a BB on that and take the x-ray. And there were times that people were several segments off on that. So, got to be careful with your palpation. It isn't, you know, necessarily all you think it is. And then your visualization and you take those, those tools and you put them together and you have five tools, not just one. You're not just, uh, uh, using the Merrick chart. Oh, you have the headache in the front of your head. So we're going to just see two and you know, your liver's bad. So we're going to, Oh, it says here to go to the liver place. So we're going to go to T7. Uh, we have, instrumentation we have palpation and you're, if you're just a motion palpator oh it's stuck on that side well why is it stuck do they have facetropism uh is there disc degeneration and some big spurs over there is it fused when i when i was in school i had long hair and there was one time i was at a at a workshop uh it was a, a troxel intern workshop and there was someone i i don't think i'd ever seen him before out there but he was higher up in the tries and so i have a broken neck and i had three three segments surgically fused and this guy's palpating my neck. He's like, Oh, this is really, really stuck in there. And he's starting to slide his hands around. Like he's going to adjust me. And I'm like, hold on cowboy. And I lift the hair up and I'm like, you, you can palpate that fixation, but you didn't feel that big scar in the back of my neck. I said, you not thrusting on that. <laughs> and maybe that's why I never saw him again. Cause he did seem a little embarrassed, but, um, you know, we, we like to, everybody likes to, think that 
we do a better job than we do um, personally and I think professionally. And I think if we were a little more honest and, and checked ourselves a little bit more, uh, we would probably the whole the whole profession and all of us individually would be would do better because you, you're going to put a little bit more effort, a little bit more work into that, which always, if you're working smart, ends up in a better result. And I don't think there's any smarter way to work than doing the Gonstead work. Yeah, one of the great things about the Gonstead work is that there are so many checks and balances built in. Um, and especially for me, when I first started as a, as a new practitioner, I knew that I needed those because it's like if you just pull one piece of information, you're like, well, if I'm only looking at this one thing, I can convince myself that I'm 100% right. But then I look at these other pieces of evidence and they all tell me I'm wrong. So maybe I should come up with a different conclusion. Exactly. And, and it, it's it, to me, I, I loved having the checks and balances. And I think that it, it is kind of a maybe it's a hard thing, but it, you're right. We need to embrace being willing and able and actually wanting to correct ourselves when our when we're wrong instead of just saying well i'm just going to believe i'm right and just keep pushing forward and hoping for the best exactly and so going back to subluxation i know i took us down a rabbit hole there sorry about that dave yeah, that's, uh -huh. that's i like those <laughs> we get good places. so uh, yeah the rabbit holes can be fun <laughs> yeah the, you know subluxation we do need to have a a definition of subluxation for the profession um, whenever, whenever I have a new patient, one of the questions I ask them is, especially if they've been to more than one chiropractor before, I say chiropractic's not like a dentist. Um, when you go to a dentist, what changes between dentist to dentist to dentist? I don't know, like, I don't know, the, the, where the office is, the, the color on the walls, the smocks, I said, exactly. But the procedures are always the same. I'm like, yeah, pretty much. And that's not like chiropractic. And the reason I'm saying this is because that has hurt us professionally because no one knows what they're getting when they walk into a chiropractor's office. You know, mm. uh, you don't know. I mean, if you go leave my office and head north, you're going to pass two offices in the first probably four miles. And one of them is pretty much a pediatric office. And open adjusting, no scoping, limited x-ray, uh, you know, a lot of drop work. And the other one is a completely diversified doctor just doing some motion palpation. And so, you know, where is the x-ray? So where is the, the scoping, the, the specificity, those things? And so it's the, the flying seven, you know, unfortunately, uh, gets a, gets some people better. You know, I, I, I've said for years that, you know, in, in some ways, innate intelligence is the biggest curse that the chiropractic profession has because, uh, you know, when we adjust, it's not our adjustment that heals the patient. It is their innate intelligence. You know, when you philosophically, uh, there are innate forces and universal forces and a universal forces, you know, the sun beating down on you, the a ball hitting you in the back of the head, uh, a chiropractic uh, adjustic force is a universal force. And if innate can adapt that force, then you get a lovely suntan, you produce some more, uh, uh, what, a, what a vitamin D, um, and you're less likely to burn the next time you're out in the sun. Uh, and if that ball or that adjustic force that the chiropractic chiropractor gives you is adapted, then it's going to correct the subluxation. If it doesn't, then you manipulate the patient and they're going to be worse. So it's not really us. It is about them. And so that, that snow shovel or literally, or that snow shovel of a chiropractor, that force that they put in, it's innate that is going to get the, them better. And I think it was Jim Parker that said, hit everybody in the ass with the snow shovel, 70% get better, 20% get worse, 10% stay the same. And so, you know, the 70% is a given and you can build a great, great practice on 70%. And by the way, that, you know, that was uh, told from, from the stage. I, there has never been any attempt to verify whether or not that 70% is actual and scientific, but the, uh, 
I'm always looking at that 20 and, and 10%. I want to get everybody better. And the only way to do that is to provide innate the, the best force possible, which is why I use these, these five tools and we try to be so specific in our adjusting. And the only way you can be specific in your adjusting is if you know what the subluxation is. And the subluxation, uh, it, th there are some strange theories out there. But, you know, the classic definition um, is a, a bone out of juxtaposition with the one uh, above or below or both. <clears throat> uh, well, I'm having a brain fart and now I don't remember the definition of subluxation. <laughs> being memorialized in front of everybody. That's horrible. <laughs> um, you know, so out of juxtaposition with the bone above or below or both to the point less than a luxation that interferes with the mental impulse. And uh, there's a couple big things there. So <clears throat> it has to be a bone out of place. It's not a muscle. Um, and um, the mental impulse is a big thing. A mental impulse is not a nerve impulse. Um, and uh, you all can look that up in Stevenson's 1927 textbook to start to go down that rabbit hole. But we, it has been distilled into what we call the MOPI model, M-O-P-I. Uh, so M stands for misalignment. And O stands for occlusion. There has to be occlusion of a foramen. I left that out of the definition. Um, there has to be pressure on a nerve and then interference to the mental impulse. So um, there. So with the misalignment, you know, if everything's properly aligned, um, then you have. Then you. How do you have a problem there? You know, you don't ever go to take your car to the mechanic and say, "Hey, misalign my tires." You want them aligned. Um, so that's that's the first part. And then once it moves out of place, the one thing that's not in that mopey distillation is the fixation. It has to get stuck. We don't thrust on the hypermobile joints because that's you know, just not smart to do. And if it's, you know, like if you turn your head to the left, I would argue that those bones are, are misaligned from a neutral. They're in perfect alignment to the when you when you're looking to the left but if you turn your head back to neutral and those bones some of those bones stay look to the left now they're they're misaligned and they are fixated there otherwise they'd move back so that's that's a part of it and then the uh and that will occlude if you look at what happens to the ivfs when you do uh, flexion extension x-rays uh, if you do lateral bending x-rays you know, they're looking at MRIs. There's obviously when things are not in their normal spot, there is an occlusion of a foramen. So there, the, the pressure on a nerve or the, you know, rock on a garden hose type theory, as it's sometimes called, is, is always in play. And there is a ton of evidence for that. Um, it is not understood as well as it needs to be. And it is not as simple as anytime you have pressure on a nerve, you have a problem. Uh, otherwise, as soon as you had a degenerated disc, you would always have a problem. And I would argue that you probably do. It's just not uh, bad enough to cause a clinical presentation or be measured with the tools we have. They need to be more sensitive to measure that. Uh, but those, those IVFs are completely full. You have fat, you have blood vessels, and you have nerve in there. And so even though they look nice and big and, and empty on our x-rays, they're, they're full of stuff. And then there's uh, fluid pressure. So you have the, the CSF is flowing around. And we know that where there's turbulence in the CSF, that that causes, um, causes problems with the spinal cord and the transmission of, of impulses. And then you have the disc that can bulge and you have the ligaments that can thicken and you can have spurring that all that will put pressure on those nerves. And then you have the loss of a curve, which is a, you know, the CBP folks, they love to restore curves and they have some great research showing the, the changes in that. But there's, 
there's definitely more to it than that. But if you if you have a reverse cervical curve, now your spinal cord is resting all the time, laying on the back of your vertebral bodies, and it's not supposed to do that. And every time you move, now there's going to be a little friction there, and it's going to rub. And if you uh, are, you know, just take one hand and start rubbing your other arm, uh, it doesn't hurt right now. But if you did that all day for a week, what would it feel like? It would be pretty red and raw. And if you did uh, long enough, you're either going to wear the skin away and have a big sore, or you're going to develop a callus, neither of which you should have on your spinal cord. Um, and then there's, if you've seen Dan Murphy, you know, there's the, the afferent model where you have the mechanoreceptors in the discs and the muscles and the brain relies on all that mechanoreceptive input to go to the cerebellum and then the hypothalamus and the thalamus and the higher center of the brain. And it refines how, how the brain works. And if you uh, go and anesthetize a bunch of those mechanoreceptors, there's some pretty interest, interesting results in those patients. Uh, they lose, they lose function. They, uh, they have all kinds of other aberrant um, uh, neurological things pop up as long as un, until that anesthesia wears off. So there's a lot we don't know about the nervous system, but we know it's the main system. And so uh, asking for proof to uh, the whole argument that we don't have enough science or proof to prove subluxation is really a straw man argument being done by people that have an agenda they want to forward. And uh, they're relying on the lack of technology to assess the phenomenon of subluxation in order to discount it. And that is completely uh, wrong. Horrible idea. You know, uh, Show me a single, double-blind, peer-reviewed study on parachutes. There isn't one. But I have a very funny one that actually was published uh, on parachuting and the, the parachutist jumped out of a, and it, it was a, it was published in an actual journal and it is a, a it's like a, it's like the spinal tap of, of peer reviewed <laughs> papers. It, it was, it was made to be a joke and point out the problem with, with the peer review process in RCTs, but the persons that were jumping out of the planes, the planes were sitting on the ground. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, no one's ever studied. We know parachutes work. All of us have seen them in work. Uh, some of us have probably even tried them, but there's no double-blind peer-reviewed published study on how parachutes work. Yeah. So um, a little bit earlier, you brought up you brought up a point that I think is interesting, and um, and it actually caused me a lot of trouble when I was uh, in school, and I think it actually affected some of my classmates to the point that it possibly changed their entire careers. But it was the the concept that all adjustments do good. The subluxations are always bad and all adjustments do good. And that always gave me issues because I thought, well, how can all adjustments be good? That's not even logical. It makes more sense to me that the amount of good you can do must be directly proportional to the amount of harm you can do. And that if you take that, position, then you have to be, well, it actually causes you to be a lot more respectful of what you're doing. Um, it to me, it changes how you approach a patient because now you're th the fear of doing harm should be just as much as the excitement of doing good. Whereas if you come blazing in thinking it doesn't matter what I do, it's all going to be good. Those turn into two very different results. Oh, hundred percent. It is. It, it that is uh, one of the most frightening aspects of the profession. The you know every adjustment's good, and you see just some crazy stuff that done um, by that. The ring dinger guy is probably a great example. You know, um, you don't see, all you see is him uh, wrapping the towel around the, the patient's neck and, and yanking, yanking on the towel. And every once in a while, they don't always show it, but, you know, he, he'll go and he will check their reflexes uh, on their knees to make sure he didn't do any neurological damage. But you don't see the, you know, and I'm assuming he does a lot of front end work to determine whether or not they're, they're ring dinger candidate. Um, but 
you don't see it in the videos because mm. if you get someone with a degenerated spine, severely degenerated spine, uh, you know, big disc bulge, depending upon where that bulge is, you can create some big problems. And I know a few months ago, I, there was a case in Wisconsin here on the other side of the state that someone did a ring dinger and uh, had a very, very bad result for the patient. And uh, it's going to be that, you know, we're going to hear about that probably sometime in the next year in, in the news. Because um, I believe that's going to trial. They had that case in England two years ago, and it just came back around where uh, a woman was doing drop work and was adjusting a 80-something-year-old man who the newspapers described as healthy, and she paralyzed him, and he died two days later. And, you know, no x-ray. They, You know, you didn't do your background work. And so I'm sure in that case that there was some pathology. He probably had cancer or something else going on that she should have known about, and maybe she couldn't have known about, because um, we don't always see tumors on x-rays. But if you didn't do the work, then you're not going to have that. But to assume that you can never do any harm, you have a tool that can only do good. There is no such thing. That's called a magic wand. And even magic wands can do bad stuff. So uh it's and when you go down that thing then you are leaving the realm of a profession and moving into the realm of a cult and you know running around uh there's these all these seminars where you know, the people get up on stage and they scream and rah 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 yeah 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 uh, you know that's that's great but you have to have some substance to what you're doing and that is what makes it scientific and to just make the blanket statement that all adjustments are good is that's moving towards a cult, if not well embedded in the cult. Yeah, I think along with that is the idea that um, distraction is always safe. Um, and I don't know if I was actually directly taught that in school, but I know that it was heavily implied that, well, if you just want to do something for the patient and you don't want to hurt them, just do distraction. I'm like, that's not always safe either. <laughs> well, you know, I, how much distraction, and right? If you're, if you're just gently taking someone's, you know, uh, the head in your hands and lifting up with a pound or two of pressure, you know, that probably is unless they have torn all those ligaments between the occiput and, and the spine, which I don't, no has ever happened because they wouldn't be in your office then you know that that probably is always safe but there are times when distraction is horrible and maybe not not just distraction but you can't stay distracted forever so um, growing up you know my dad my folks had seen chiropractors and my dad got one of those inversion tables and so he would he owned a heating and air conditioning company. He'd always worked in the trade. So, you know, he was a little beat up like those guys are. And so I come home one time and I can hear someone yelling from the basement. So I go down there and his back had bothered him, been hurting him. So he got in there and he flipped upside down and felt good. And when he flipped up, then it pinched worse than when he was upside down. And so now he, he's stuck there and he was, he was half leaning forward. He couldn't lean forward to get himself out and he couldn't lean back because the pain was too much. So I had to slowly tip him back upside down and let him hang there for a minute, slowly tip him back up, get him out of there and then load him up in the car and take him to the chiropractor. So, you know, that distraction felt great to him, but when he had to compress because you can't, you know, you can't be decompressed all the time. You can't hang upside down or hang from the chin up bar for forever or hang your head over the back of the door or whatever it is, how they do that. Uh, if, if when you stop the decompression and compress, that's when you find out, did you make something significantly worse? So to kind of, just kind of sum this all up, I have, uh, uh, I guess like a practical question. So, when it comes to the day-to-day -day and seeing patients, 
how do the concept of subluxation and even a lot of these philosophical ideas that you understand, how do they fit into your thinking and that, how do they affect what you do on a day-to-day basis? Uh, say that again. <laughs> well, I'm just wondering, like, we've got all these philosophical ideas and it is, it is true. Like I, I have green books and I read through them and, um, and the whole concept of subluxation how do those things become practical to you? Because I know there's probably people who are really like, well, it doesn't even matter if you know this stuff or care about this stuff. It's it's irrelevant. But how does it really affect you on a day-to-day basis? How does the concept of subluxation affect your thinking process? And how do some of these philosophical ideas determine what you do with a patient? Um, well, probably the, the easiest way to jump into that is patient education. Like right now on my whiteboards, I've got uh, two funnels. One's upside down and one's right side up. And, you know, when patients ask what the funnels are for, I'm like, okay, so chiropractors legally right now have the, the duty to diagnose, but diagnosis is, we know through science that diagnosis is accurate about 15% of the time, you know, when they do the autopsy and look at what, what were they diagnosed with? Well, this is what we found on autopsy. They didn't have that. All right. So when you look at an upside down funnel, you know, the patient comes in with a symptom and it goes in the, the, the teeny little part of the funnel and who's ever doing the diagnosing has to figure out which of the, you know, 150 or 15 or five things could be causing that, that symptom, that presenting problem. And then uh, which of the hundred things they could do to treat that uh, diagnosis, um, which of those are they going to use? And most of the time, very rarely are they right. And chiropractic uses the funnel the other way. You know, chiropractor BJ didn't diagnose. Uh, we don't diagnose. We analyze. And, and some people say that's semantics, but it's a very, very important difference. It doesn't matter whether the patient comes in with infertility or low back pain or, or bedwetting or migraine headache or, or no symptoms. Uh, all we are looking for, so that's whoever comes in on the big part of the funnel, it's just all distilled down because you have a nervous system that runs your body. And if there's a subluxation in your spine affecting the nervous system, as all subluxations do, then we can help you. Now, that doesn't mean that that subluxation is related to your, your infertility, your bedwetting, your, your uh, low back pain, or your migraine headache. It might not be directly related to it. But it is related somehow because the subluxation is in your body and you are expressing that symptom. So that's why we tend to, even if we don't see a huge direct change, eventually there is a change in that. And so education-wise and um, on a day-to-day clinical basis, probably looking and understanding that what I find may not be directly related to that. I mean, every... The, the biggest problem I think every chiropractor uh, finds themselves, quandary they find themselves in at some point, usually early on in their profession, is that they think chiropractic is a panacea. You know, everything is going to be caused by uh, subluxation and everything's going to be helped by subluxation. And while that's true, everything can be caused by subluxation and subluxation is probably related to everything. It doesn't mean that that patient that comes in is going to see the results that you think. And that's when you go back to Dr. Gonstead's quote, you know, when it appears not to examine your application. And uh, the more we go down the, the rabbit hole of neurology and we learn more and more about how the, the body works and what's going on in there, uh, we find more connections and it, and it gets more confusing. And that's why, you don't want to go into the diagnosis. You don't want to go into the direct neurological rabbit hole. You want to go into the locate and correct vertebral subluxation uh, pathway because we know we can do that. We have a well-defined way of doing that and knowing when we should not be intervening. And then uh, monitoring the patient. And we know that that helps. And uh, one of the one of my uh, uh, former associates just posted on one of the Gunstead web pages, uh, Dr. Wyatt Tyler. Hey Wyatt, give you a little shout out there. Uh, an awesome 
case story about when he decided not to adjust and it was a right call because we've all said, oh yeah, we'll give that one more and then wished we hadn't. And that is when you deviate from what your, your tools told you and your philosophy may have told you and tried to impose your idea. Well, if, if three adjustments was good, four was better. And I think you see that in a lot of way people adjust. Well, you know, if one, one segment is good, then doing <laughs> all segments five times in a visit is great. That's what you need. I'm going to move everything. So, all right, take a step to the left. You just moved everything left. Take a step to the right. You do the, do the time warp and you've just corrected a left and a right subluxation and every segment of the person's fine. So the time warp was that dance from the Rocky Horror Picture Show in case no one got that joke. <laughs> I didn't. I've only seen it once. <laughs> uh, right. well, we're going to have to change that. <laughs> well, I, I think that is a great place for us to conclude because that is, I think that is a great summary of a subluxation and, and philosophy and how they come together and what we do um, and how it directs what we do. Um, thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's, it's been very enlightening, and I think it's awesome to be able to take philosophy and, and put that back into what we're doing. Um, and show uh, that thank, thanks for having me. This is a blast. Uh, it's too bad we only had an hour. Uh, I, I do have um, some quick questions for you that I do for everybody because right. we have to do our speed round so that people can get to know you better. Speed so, round. <laughs> what, uh, what is one book that has changed your life? One book. Uh, I'll give you several books. Uh, volume five is all about the cycles in the green books by Craven. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Stevenson's textbook is a, a standby. Mm -hmm. um, I have probably read that book more than anybody, uh, or not anybody, but than any other book I've ever read. And every time I get something new out of it, um, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Um, and, uh, well, we'll stick with three. So, <laughs> it's either three or 33, so... Yeah, you have 33 books. Um, name, a, name an artist or a song that nobody would ever guess that you like. <clears throat> an artist or a song that no one would know I like. Uh, right now, I'm digging Gary Clark Jr. Uh, but I will say that the, the individual I've seen most in concert is Ted Nugent. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, do you consider yourself to be a night owl or an early bird? Uh, I, in my life, I've been both. Right now, I'm way more of an early bird. I'm kind of a, and I wouldn't even call myself an early bird. Um, definitely not uh, a night owl unless there's karaoke involved. So there's a book called, actually, I can't remember which book it was because I read so many. I think it's called, it's the book when by Daniel Pink, but it may be a different one. Anyway, um, it talks about night owls and early birds. Mm -hmm. And it basically says that our early years, we're all early birds and that night owls actually is an acquired, <laughs> an acquired taste. <laughs> oh, I, I did have like a, a year in undergrad where I slept maybe 15 hours a week. I just didn't sleep. <laughs> yeah. I've had that too, yeah. But now I... You know, and I, it might be because I like to hunt. So I tend to, I get up early, but you know, I'm up usually about six o'clock every day. I'm in the office, you know, seven ish and sometimes a little earlier, sometimes a little later, but, uh, just that daily grind every day. I'm, I'm up about the same time weekends. Uh, if I'm hunting then I'm up, you know, four thirty-five. So, but <clears throat> staying up late at night just does not sit well with me much anymore. What is your favorite movie? Favorite? Oh, man. I don't like this whole favorite thing here. Um, <laughs> uh, I uh, I love the Matrix movies. Oh, um, yeah. That's great. Um, v for Vendetta. Again, the Warshawskis. I don't know if it's something about the way they make movies. Uh, yeah, Caddyshack. I wore out uh three vhs cassettes of caddyshack over the years so i'll quote things from caddyshack if people just give me strange looks <laughs> <laughs> me too me too my wife my wife says you gotta stop using those jokes because no one gets them and so like seriously nobody watches this movie <laughs> uh, 
but yeah, they, well, you know, when you go to the GMI seminars, most of the attendees are in their twenties now. <laughs> so they've never seen Caddyshack. So well, I'll the line up there and like three people will giggle at it. And I'm like, all right, I got to start watching. Ask my kids what movies I need to watch so I can make relevant jokes. And, and the staff, you know, because my I have a 25-year-old that runs my front desk in the mornings. And she does not get half my jokes. I'm like, all right, put it on the list. You got to look it up. So... <laughs> Um, and I, and then I always end with the most Gonstead question ever, which is, what kind of scope do you use? Uh, I use, yes, I use them all. So I have a large collection. I have a Delta T. I have a couple of uh, um, plastic nervous scopes. I have a Tempus scope. I have the new scope. I have a bunch of old nervous scopes. Most of I have a aluminum battery-powered, so the first battery-powered scope. Um, and I use them all. I mean, they all read a little differently and sometimes I'll use two or three scopes on the same patient. Um, pull them out. No, uh, there's, I think there's something there. Let me see if this one reads a little differently. Um, and I, I, I really, really think that that is the way to go because scopes, they change, they, they might lose sensitivity. I think the old ones read the old ones and the new ones are they are reading different things you have a, a true thermocouple in a non-battery powered scope and a galvanometer in a in a battery powered scope and those are two very different principles so i try and stick with the old ones uh, as much as i can uh, but always looking for something that reads and finds better and just sitting there you know at a seminar sometime everybody take your scope to a seminar and find someone with an old scope and find someone with a new scope and run them. And if they're doing, if you see the exact same thing, then they're measuring the exact same thing. But you will find they read a little differently. So uh, use them all. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, I, I have several different ones, and I do notice that as well. My my old scope is my favorite, but the only problem with it is it's so old that the, uh, the wires inside just disintegrated, so I have to get it repaired. <laughs> Well, yeah. And, and if you do that, uh, get it done fast because I had at one point and I, well, I still own it. It just doesn't work. I had the oldest working model that EDL knew of and they wanted to buy it back for me for a, you know, I guess then it was almost a car. They were going to pay me for it. And I, I said, Nope, I love it. And you'll pay me more for it later. Well, then the, the tip broke, the wires in the tip broke. And it's so old that they don't make those tips anymore. So, mm. so now I'm, it's, uh, I'm frustrated. So I have a working meter. So I'm looking for an old scope, same, same type that doesn't work. So I can drop this meter in that one because it is a fantastic scope. But yeah, that's the worst thing is they are amazing. And yet just the <laughs> problems of time, they have issues. Yep. Principle number six, taking it back to philosophy. <laughs> yeah, well, well, thank you so much for joining me. This has been awesome. Oh, really thank great. you much, Dave. This was a blast. Let's do it again soon. Yeah, absolutely. All righty. All right. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank Dr. Dan Lyons for joining me this week. We all appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk about subluxations with us today. For all of our loyal listeners, I want to take just a moment to ask you to share this podcast with any friends or family that could benefit from learning more about Gonstead Chiropractic. And for all the students out there, please share this with your fellow students, and especially with students who do not have a Gonstead Club at their school. We would love to have a Gonstead Club on every college campus. I'd also like to remind you again about the Gonstead Extravaganza in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin on April 25th and 26th. Well, I hope you learned a lot this week, and if you'd be sure to give us a review, it would help us to become more accessible to the people who need to hear this message. In the meantime, take care. I'll see you again next week.